You're listening to a podcast from The Stage, the world's oldest and best theatre publication, thestage.co.uk. Hello, the smiles on flyers' faces are getting weaker, the faces of the people being flyed are even more miserable, and the closest that most performers have come to eating greens is when they've fallen over face first in the meadows from exhaustion. Yes, we're halfway through the fringe, and we're halfway through these podcasts too, and there's a huge amount of coverage on the Stage website, so check that out at thestage.co.uk. Thanks as ever to our sponsors Mobius. Now, in a few minutes, Stage critic Stuart Pringle gives his top three shows of the festival so far, but first, here's theatre maker Kieran Hurley on his show Heads Up, a story set during the apocalypse. It's a sort of storytelling piece, I suppose, in which I am sat at a desk telling a story into a microphone. The story that I'm telling is about the end of the world, so it's an apocalypse narrative, which was something a bit new for me to tell a story that was hinging on such a big, verbose, almost sci-fi, biblical, central conceit. I suppose it's just kind of my response to what it feels like to be alive in a world that um, increasingly feels to be built on crisis and catastrophe. Uh, what's scary is when I talk to people about the show and they go, oh yeah, that's very zeitgeisty. And you're like, it's supposed to be about the end of the world, it shouldn't feel zeitgeisty. But it does. So it kind of tells a story of a, of a, of a city, a fictional city, and weaves some different stories of different lives in that city on the, at the moment that the world ends. And each of these different lives are defined in some way by some sense of interpersonal catastrophe of some description. I suppose I suppose you could say that, but I wouldn't want to say too much about that. And there's, uh, music is quite a central thing. The, the sound design and composition is by a guy called MJ McCarthy. Basically, there's 32 buttons in front of me, each of which has, like, a uh, different constituent part of MG's sound design, and I'm operating those while talking. So why did you decide to operate them yourself? Um, there's a few reasons. Quite a lot of stuff that I've done has involved music as part of... It's a quite an integral part of the storytelling, in a way, and I'm always kind of interested in trying to f- push it that in different, in different directions. I wanted to create a sense of me sort of conjuring this city and these lives through this story. So each of the characters have a little bit of a different kind of thematic soundtrack. So there's something about about music and sound that is really integral to how the story is told. And it it ends up actually sounding really, really different as as well as looking different than if they were just being operated off stage because each change in sound, each cue, becomes a kind of gesture. So it's only happening because there's a kind of gestural reason for it to happen. That all sounds quite highfalutin and it's nowhere near as cerebral as that in performance. It's actually much more instinctive and accessible than that. But um, Right, because what, what we see on stage is you're sitting at a desk, you're yep. wearing a suit, yep. and so you've got this kind of authoritative air as mm. the narrator of this story, mm. and it's a lot of it's second person, is that right? So it's, the whole thing's told in second person, yeah. which was new for me. So it, we, we do get the sense that you're some kind of, I don't know, some, one of the critics like in to Cassandra, yeah, right, it's okay, the kind wow, of prophet, cool. or yeah. yeah, and so presumably that kind of Cueing your own music sort of plays into that. Well, yeah, it does. I mean, it, it's it's um, I'm the one breathing life into this made-up city that I've made up, and then I'm the one then who kills it. So why is it important for you to use music? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I've thought about this loads because so much of it is instinctive, isn't it? I didn't set out to be a solo theatre performer and I didn't necessarily even set out to be someone who uses music. That happened in that first show because I had some mates whose music I loved and I wanted to ask them to soundtrack it. 
on one level, the running joke that I have now is to do with being some kind of frustrated guitarist and maybe I should have actually been in a band and wanted to be in a band but couldn't play an instrument and can't sing so I find myself in a theatre rehearsal room that increasingly apes the rehearsal room of live bands um, <laughs> uh, to satisfy some kind of latent psychological emotional need of my own teenage self. That's perhaps going on. As well as that, music and theatre have always been like host pals. Like, there's something about the essence that I was describing of the liveness and sharedness of theatre and that being part of the driving force that keeps me in it in the first place that is really just also super present there with live music and people's experience of live music and those things all just seem to kind of coalesce in a way that kind of makes sense for me. Yeah, it's that same thrill, isn't it? It's that same thrill of seeing some, uh, a performer performing live yeah, totally. and a musician playing live and even if it is queuing up music that's already been composed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's still that kind of... There's still an element of composition. Yeah, I think so, yeah. 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 And as I say, I think it's quite instinctive as well. I mean, it's, it's useful to think these things through, but so often in the room, yeah. what you're doing is working from a place of instinct rather mm -hmm. than a place of somewhere up here. You've said about this show that it's sort of angrier than your last Aye, pieces. And yeah. Do you know where that anger's come from? I think, to be honest with you, like, I don't think I'm alone in taking a little bit of a, of a sort of sharp, uh, angled turn in that direction. Um, you could really place this piece in conversation with a lot of other recent and current work by my peers, I guess, as well. And I think that that's inevitable, that artists are going to start making work that feels more difficult. I guess there is anger, it's also, there's also just like difficulty in there as well, it's like, because it's still full of jokes as well. It's just, it's not as easy as, as, as some previous work in, I guess the phrase that I kind of borrow from Alex, who made the show with me, is about having made work that people might have described as kind of charming and feeling dissatisfied with charming as a response to how the world is. I guess that's the easiest way that I have mm. to answer it. We live in pretty dark times, man, and we're not unique in that, you know, like, and I'm pretty sure anyone who's 60 or 70 listening to this talk will be like, yeah, I, I, we've lived through dark times and darker, and, but, you know, it's, 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 it's inevitable that the, the, the work that we see on stage will respond to that. And, and why, personally, do you use theatre as a space to, to uh, channel that anger? It's hard to really give a proper um, interesting angle on it when it's just kind of become your job. So, like, the immediate sense is just, oh, it's just because I, I kind of have to, because the way in which I think about earning my living is, like, I've got to think about what the next show I'm going to make is or what the next play I'm going to write is or whatever. Do you know, the, the slightly, hopefully, more interesting answer, I suppose, the thing that I... The, the thing that makes me stick with the theatre, and I think you'll hear quite a lot of theatre makers say this, and I think sometimes it can feel a little predictable and romantic or whatever, but the thing that makes me stick with theatre, even though I get massively frustrated with it at times, I do, it really, really pisses me off. Uh, the thing that makes me stick with, with, with theatre is something to do with being in a room together as we think and feel our way through something, and that being an important thing to do. So for me, it's about being together in a room live with an audience and an mm -hmm. audience being together in a, in, a, in, a, in a group, in a kind of, if I'm going to romanticise it, community, as we think and, think and feel our way through some things to do with where we're all at in yeah. the world. You know, just, by, just by putting the show in front of an audience, you're yeah. already trying to combat some of the worries that the show has. I guess that's one way of putting it. I'm not sure I would phrase it exactly like that myself, but I wouldn't have any argument with that. That seems about right. What 
drives you to bring work to the fringe? What is it about the fringe? Ooh, um, it's a, a bit of a bit of old, you know, just old-fashioned FOMO sometimes. To be honest with you, I hadn't been here for a few years, and um, part of me was just like felt like it was about time I had a fringe show. It's a very, as, a, as an artist based in Scotland, it's a really convenient and lovely opportunity for a whole bunch of people who are important to your work and your career and your uh, artistic professional community who normally feel a bit remote uh, are suddenly on your doorstep. And it's a way to put your work in conversation with those people, be they, be they your peers or be they venues um, who you've not been in touch with for a while or whatever, and you can invite people to come and see your work, and that's great. Um, it's also a huge headache doing the fringe. Like, make no mistake. Like it's it re it's, a, it's it's a brilliant thing and it's a and it's a tough, brutal thing as well. Like it is, uh, but it is what it is. And we're um, yeah, and I'm glad to be here. That was Kieran Hurley, and his show Heads Up is on at Summer Hall every day at 7:05, apart from Monday the 22nd. Now I found Stuart Pringle taking an uncustomary break over a drink, so here's his pick of the fringe so far. So, Stu, are you, you're still alive so far? I'm still alive. I've been here exactly one week and I'm still alive. And how many shows have you seen? I've written about 27 reviews and then I've seen probably another seven or eight, so probably about 35. So, um, let's do something simple. Top three shows you've seen so far. I'll start with the crushingly predictable Daniel Kitson's Mouse which was uh, everything I could have hoped it would be. So it you was, gave that five stars. I gave it five stars, which is on the stage.co.uk. Um, <laughs> and it was it was just a joy. It was a much larger theatre show than I was expecting. I'd heard it had whiteboards in it. It turns out it had so much more than whiteboards in it. And it was kind of a, a twisty, turny, uh, very clever story in its own right, but that also reflected very beautifully on not just on how Kitson feels as he goes into his sort of middle age, which is what Kitson feels is usually what he talks about, um, but also a more wide uh, consideration of the idea of the choice between family or career and, and, and okay. all of that. Business. So now I've only seen one Daniel Kitson show. Um, which was? Which was Tree at right. the Old Vic, uh, I think a year ago. So sell Kitson to me. What, why Why do people get... Because you're, you're a Kitson super fan. Yeah, I've, I've drunk the Kool-Aid on Kitson. <laughs> so sell him to me. What, what is it about him? Initially, I was attracted to him by his amazing stand-up, and mm -hmm. it's incredibly good and incredibly humane and precise and funny. But then his theatrical shows have been increasingly charting a narrative of both his progression through his career and also his life, while at the same time being incredibly complex, that play very cleverly with form and with theatrical form and with recently technology. And this continues that. It's, it's um, without giving too much away, it's a one-man show, but it has many voices and uh, uses many different technological devices. And it's incredibly aware of its own theatricality in a way which is in no way patronising or irritating. Um, he's a reliably profound observer of humanity, and I think that's what everyone wants from theatre. Great. And the show's called... Mouse, Mouse. The Persistence of an Unlikely Thought. And that's on at Traverse, isn't it? So it that'll is. be varying times. It's yeah. incredibly sold out, but I think if you <laughs> queue for returns, you'll probably manage right. to get in. But yeah, no, that is everything that you might hope it would be. So that's number one. Number, number two. one. Number two, I think I'm going to go with uh, Tank, actually, uh, by Breach Theatre. Yeah, so Breach had a, a sort of breakout hit last year with the Beanfield. They did, and this is better, I think. Really? Um, in almost every way. It's a sort of reflection on the kind of infamous story of the 1960s experiments into dolphin-human communication, um, in which, among other things, they injected a dolphin with LSD, and this, uh, this, this poor woman who is not really a scientist but somehow got co-opted into it uh, ended up 
living with this dolphin in a flooded office for 10 weeks. And sort of the thing everyone remembers about it and the headline story on it is that she ended up sort of wanking this dolphin off. And Tank faces that story head on, but rather than just repeating it or mining it for its salacious details, it kind of becomes a consideration of how we tell stories, particularly stories about women, and how we how the narratives which persist and the narratives which come to define a story are often those which appeal to white horny men. Um, and it does it while being incredibly fun. Okay, yeah, because what was the one of the most interesting things about the Beanfield last year was how. You know, for a very young company, how self-aware they were as, as theatre makers and how self-aware the show was as a piece of theatre. Um, so it sounds like they're continuing some of that in time. Absolutely, and they're, com they're completely taking the piss out of themselves and their techniques at the same time as, as really mastering them. And it's quite a high-tech show, and it's really pushing the envelope for what such a young company in such a small space is mm. capable of. And it just really feels like a piece of work which is constantly thinking about itself and constantly interrogating every single level of it. And both its theme and its presentation, the fact that these are the people producing it, it's all in there. And uh, to have all of that within an hour that still feels light and easily digestible, and you can watch it at 10.30 in the morning, which is when they're <laughs> playing, is, is a real achievement. Great. And, um, and then number three? Number three, I'm going to say, it was my whole day yesterday at Forest, I think. Brilliant, um, yeah, so, so you said in one of the previous episodes you are going to devote two days to Forest yep. Fringe, so this is day one of your... Done my first one, yeah, I did my first one yesterday. What did you see? The whole day kicked off with a piece by Daniel Oliver uh, called Weird Seance, which sort of built from uh, purposefully sort of awkward, everyone standing around in a circle, a bit of confusion, into eventually a kind of deconstruction of Forest Fringe itself okay. and of that kind of live art and of exactly the kind of live art which Forest has kind of championed and which has become its sort of its sort of trademark. Mm. At one point, uh, Andy Field from Forest Fringe, one of the co-curators and founders, was lying on the floor in a pool of fake blood because he'd been murdered during this this show <laughs> that we were sort of retrospectively looking at, looking back at, uh, as Daniel Oliver, stark naked with twigs strapped to him, sort of bellowed around the room. So that was amazing. Um, and then <laughs> okay. best of all, uh, a piece called Time Lab, in which I was given a, a broken wristwatch, or you can bring your own in, and then I had an hour and a half to smash it apart with a hammer and wow. form it into a piece of jewellery. Uh, wow, okay. And you just sat for an hour and a half and, and took cogs apart with pliers mm -hmm. and then and put them back together into something, and it, it, fe it really felt like a suspended hour, as distant from the madness of the fringe yeah. or, or the kind of relentlessness of everyday life as you could as you could imagine. It's those shows that stick out, isn't it? It's the ones that completely take you out of that kind of rush of the fringe and just sort yeah. of put you somewhere, and may, you know, and it's often the ones where you just find a little bit of peace for an hour as yeah. well. I mean, Forrest is full of incredibly politically charged work, but the thing I always take away from it is it always feels like a gift. It always feels like a moment of peace that you've been given. That was Stuart Pringle, and that's it from me for now. Back in a couple of days talking to the punk princesses of late-night theatre, Rashdash, about gender and feminism and their new piece, Two Man Show. And then next Monday, the man the Metropolitan Police describe as a general rabble-rouser and alleged comedian, that's the award-winning activist Mark Thomas, discussing his show, The Red Shed. Thanks for listening.